But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome to episode 18 of the Reach podcast. We're back with part two of the Kylie Saxeter interview. If you remember from episode 15, Kylie is a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. And in the first part, we talked a lot about just her, her diagnosis in general and what it was like to kind of get that diagnosis, how her training as a physician helped her deal with some of that stuff and just kind of going through the initial stages of treatment. In today's show, and today's chat, we're talking more about what it was like going through treatment, what it was like balancing her residency program with treatment, and how she kind of modified exercise going through treatment, how she valued the social support of going through treatment with, with her friends and family and even her gym instructors, and some of the late effects she's experiencing now about a year out from treatment. So again, it's kind of an extension of part one. If you haven't listened to that one, go back to episode 15 to give you a bit of perspective of, of Kylie's background and where she's coming from. And again, she does such a good job because of her training as a physician of explaining why she felt how she did during treatment and what the effects of the treatment are, particularly with things like getting steroids before chemo and how that affects patterns of fatigue and nausea, so on and so forth. So again, really big thanks to Kylie for, for sharing her experience and uh, she was so honest and, and candid about everything she went through. So I can't thank her enough for, for all of that. And without further ado, we'll get to the episode. Enjoy. How do you residency is, is a nightmare I know. for a healthy person in terms of the just the, the cognitive strain how do you how did you do it I was lucky to be in dermatology residency which was good because there's no call like there's no weekend call there's no night call there's no 24-hour shifts in the hospital that was my intern year and luckily this I mean this all happened at the right time because my intern year I was working I did two months of nights I would have never in the hospital I would never have been able to do that and go through my treatment so I would have had to take time off but my my residency was so understanding everybody in it was so understanding and i structured it you know kind of like darcy did where i i had my chemos on thursdays fridays i would go to work they give you steroids before they do the chemo infusions and this is another thing people don't they just hang up bags and people have no idea what what they're even getting uh, yeah. people have no idea that they get prednisone before as a pre-infusion 
pump. So they give you steroids before the infusion. And I think that's why people don't feel the effects for like two days. Like the next day you feel semi-okay. You feel a little bit out of it, but you don't feel super sick. And I think that's because of the steroids that they give you first. And then it's the, you know, so I would have chemo Thursday. I would go to work on Friday, like normal Saturday. I would get out of bed, but not really leave the house. And then Sunday I wouldn't get out of bed. And then Monday was hit or miss. Like I might make it like a half day into work. Like I might go in at like 11 or 12 or something. And then, like I said, I would pre-plan with my reading. Like I would be the weekends. So it took over my life because the weekends where I was not getting chemo, I was studying the entire time because I had like double the reading to do that weekend. And then the next weekend I was in bed. And when I was in bed, I couldn't, it's like, your vision is blurry. You're, you don't think straight. And like, I couldn't, I would just lay there and sometimes I wouldn't even be sleeping. I would just be laying in bed because I couldn't focus on the TV even to watch a movie. Like, it's just like your vision was off and you just feel, it's kind of like when you lay down and get the spins when you're drunk. It's like (laughs) kind of like that, but not as fun. And it's like the worst hangover you've ever had times a hundred. You know, that's a pretty, (laughs) I think most people could relate to that. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I mean, I just, it took a ton of planning. It took a lot of understanding on the um, parts of my co-residents of, and of my faculty. And um, I had a lot of catching up to do at the beginning of the second year, I would say, you know, so I was barely anyone who, who has been in grad school or has done kind of extensive post-grad training knows and understands that feeling of guilt when you take a weekend off mm-hmm. or when you, you know, you go on vacation, you're like, I should be writing, I should be reading. Mm-hmm. How does that manifest itself when you are taking all this time off, but it's not of your own accord? Mm-hmm. Do, do you have those feelings of guilt and how does that, how does that look? I, I didn't as much, I would say, um, because when I was taking the time off, I was like too sick or out of it to even care. And then when I wasn't, when I was an, on an off chemo weekend, I was doing nothing but studying. So I really didn't have a lot of free time in there. And then during chemo, I would bring my mom, I would bring my computer and either my mom and I would do wedding planning stuff, or I would sit there with my books and read. And I, there's pictures of me and I've got like my Bologna dermatology book sitting next to me on the little infusion chair. Um, wow. I know. So at what point aside from kind of the, the acute effects of of you know a single session of chemo at what point does it kind of start to accumulate and you know maybe some physiological changes start happening how does how long was your chemo and what point did you start to really start you know maybe lose your hair and all that type of stuff so i had eight chemo infusions and um they were every two weeks but it got thrown off a little bit because of those two times that i went in and wasn't able to get it so I would say after my second chemo is when my hair, I felt like started to really like come out in clumps. And um, I just decided to cut it at that time. I just cut it probably about the length I have it now, like a little shorter than chin length. And I just felt like it would be more manageable that way. I mean, it's, it's a lot of psychological stress to see like literally handfuls of hair coming out in the shower. And hair was just everywhere. Like, if you think hair from a woman is everywhere in the bathroom now, <laughs> like, just wait. You have no idea. I mean, it was everywhere. So I was like, I'm just going to cut it because I think it'll be a little bit easier. But the hair to me was never 
as big of a deal as it is to some people. I didn't, when I shaved my head, I didn't even cry. I, and I'm not sure why. I think because I had such a strong support system and I, I like my husband is, is the most supportive person in the world. So I don't know. I just like, he made me feel beautiful even when I shaved my head. Like I didn't cry about it. And he essentially can never complain about hair in the bathroom. No? <laughs> exactly. Because you can go remember that time. Exactly. You're right. I like it. You um, got a free boy. I know. You're right. But I would say uh, even after the second chemo, I went. I had chemo on Thursday and I was at clocked. Matt's clocked on Saturday morning. And usually the Saturdays are bad days. Yeah. I remember that. So I went to dinner. We went to dinner with Darcy and Matt. Like I was diagnosed on Monday. We went to dinner with them on Friday because I wanted to hear, you know, about her experience with everything. And she kind of told me that, you know, it's going to start out being not so bad and then it's going to get worse. And she, it's funny to look back on that meeting. She brought me a book and she brought me a candle. She was so sweet. But you could tell when I was talking to her that she was kind of reliving her experience too. And it was kind of like, if a junior in college came up to me and was like, I want to go to medical school and I want to be a dermatologist. And I would be like, that's great for you. And then I start thinking about everything they have to do to get to the point where I'm at and how I would never want to do it all over again. And I like, I, I, I feel bad for them just thinking about that they have to take step one and they're going to have to do OB call and they're going to have to spend the, their whole lives for the next six to ten years are going to be just studying constantly and I'm so happy I'm through it <laughs> and I feel so bad for them and that's kind of how Darcy I feel like was looking at me like she was just like oh you have no like and I'm like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed like I'm gonna kick this thing in the butt and that's kind of how like pre-medical pre-meds think like yeah medical school is gonna be fun and you're like you're gonna get slapped in the face that is and it so i was like you could tell she was like oh god you have no clue what you're in for it's a really interesting perspective and i wonder if you now have that too after as you're going through it you come up with these robots you're kind of like just take it day by day and take mm -hmm. it incident by incident but now looking back was it worse than you expected it to be yeah, I think that like if I ever had to do it again, it would be much harder because I would know what to expect. But at the time, it's I don't want to say an adventure, but like you just you do it, you don't know what to expect. You're right. And so it, I think it'd be a lot harder when you know when you know how much it's going to really suck. So how was your how was your mindset through it? Were you were you just kind of I'm going to beat this, I'll get through it? It will soak, but I'll be out the other end. Well, and I had the medical knowledge to know that I most likely was not going to die from this. Like the fact, like the thought of of myself of me dying from this wasn't my concern. I knew it was going to suck for a little while. And my best friend has Crohn's disease, and she's on an injectable like biologic medicine. And she would say stuff. I would ask her how she's doing, and she'd be like, you know, but it's nothing compared to what you're going through. And I was just kind of like, yeah, but what I'm going through is temporary. And I'm going to be through it in six to eight months. And she's always going to have Crohn's disease. And like, which makes, which one's worse? I don't know. But then as I got into my treatment, I started to realize that it wasn't. So at the beginning, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, go through chemo and radiation. Then I'm going to be done with this. And then it's going to be behind me. 
I didn't realize that the effects of some of these things were going to stick with me forever. And then once I started getting more into it, the more I realized that, okay, like we were at a crossroads after I had chemo. Should I have radiation or not was the question. I had a negative PET scan, but the PET scan, so on a PET scan, you have to have about a square centimeter of tumor cells, of cancer cells in order to light up on a PET scan. If you have less than a square centimeter, that's considered microscopic disease and that doesn't show up on the PET scan. So the idea behind the radiation is that if there's three cancer cells left in there, so I still have a mass there, it's scar tissue, most likely. And on my CAT scans, it shows an area of sclerotic, like scar tissue. The idea behind the radiation is, say there's three cancer cells hiding inside that scar tissue. The radiation is to kill that microscopic disease that doesn't show up in the PET scan. But the radiation predisposes you to other types of cancers in the, in the future, breast cancer for one, thyroid was a big one in my field of radiation treatment, and skin cancer, all kinds of stuff. So esophageal cancer, depending on whatever's in the, your field. So it's like, it's a gamble. What, what are the chances that I have microscopic disease left versus what are the chances that I'm going to get breast cancer in the future? And would I rather have a mastectomy one day? And like, at least breast cancer is, we're pretty pretty good at detecting it now and they would be hyper vigilant about me and I was like going through all these scenarios and my decision is could potentially impact the rest of my life and th those are the stuff that the stuff that I didn't think about that I thought I was just going to go through this and be done with it, it was going to be behind me and that's not true yeah that's a lot of people don't know that 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 you have the choice to decide what what treatment you have and a lot of people are given that choice without the foundation that you have mm -hmm. and uh it can be frightening because mm -hmm. you, you also don't have a lot of time to make it it's kind of like exactly. do or don't what do you, what do you want to do and without knowing the long-term effects as well so what what ultimately what had you on the fence and then what made you sway your decision one way or the other because recurrent hodgkins the treatment for recurrent hodgkins is bone marrow transplant regardless of like what stage it is or whatever that's just where we are in medicine right now and i was like okay worst case scenarios for both case say i get recurrent hodgkins i have to get a bone marrow transplant i have to be on immunosuppressive medication for the rest of my life i could potentially get graft versus host disease where the bone marrow that they transplanted into me attacks my own body and all this stuff and then on the other hand maybe i get breast cancer but i'm getting yearly MRIs and they're really hypervigilant about it and maybe I have to have a mastectomy but it, I don't I think that they would be my cancer screenings will be so up to date that they they would hopefully catch something early so I was like okay which one would I rather have and I was like okay well I'd rather have a mastectomy or whatever I I, I just didn't want to take any chances because the treatment for recurrent Hodgkin's is really difficult and grueling so I, I want to touch on some of your kind of, as you said, the later side effects that you're still dealing with. But first, uh, <laughs> for people who don't know SOS, uh, it's a it's a group based uh, gym primarily full of different classes from really intense cardio to some more strength based exercise and mix. But the, the it's it's an intense environment for the most part, like the, the music is banging, really good atmosphere, mm -hmm. the instructors are in your face having a good time, really motivating. 
but it's also a high intensity class for the most part like you said you leave most of them sweating feeling like a really good workout and it can be tough for people to get through those workouts at the best of times so how did that look in terms of you going through your chemo <laughs> uh, you know, I have just have this memory of of Corella or Gretchen just in your face, like you got two more squats, mm-hmm. and you're like, no, I don't. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, how how did that look in terms of you modifying your workout? You know your body, you yeah. know what you're going through. How did that? How did you modify them going through chemo? I remember one particular incident with Gretchen, who for some reason she like I'm like her rival when I'm in class. Like she like <laughs> she, t- yeah, she has targets. She, yes. And she definitely targets me. And I remember her she challenged me to something. And I was like she I think I was on a tall plyo and she wanted to challenge me to plyo jumps or something like that. And I was like, dude, I have cancer. <laughs> like that is not fair. And she was like, Yeah, but I've been eating like crap. Like, you know, I was like, that is not the same thing. She did not let up on me at all. She did not care. I was like, give me some sort of handicap. Like, what's the handicap for cancer? I should be spotted like 10 plyo jumps or something. Um, So I still stuck to my 530 a.m. classes. I would go all the week. Like, I when I had chemo on Thursday, I would go Thursday morning. Sometimes I would take like a high and tight on Friday morning. Then Saturday, Sunday, and Monday I didn't go. And then I'd go back on Tuesday. And Tuesday was flex and flow. So that was a lower impact, not so much cardio. Then Wednesday I took in the mix. Thursday I took control, like Friday and Saturday clocked. And like it, it would go, I would go every day during my um, like off chemo. I would modify some of the moves. I wouldn't do, it was the high intensity cardio that was the hardest. And that's something too that's very difficult when you're going through treatment is, all of this stuff is happening to your body and you have no control over it and you've never experienced it before and you don't know what's normal and you don't know what's a normal amount of fatigue versus what's excessive fatigue and i actually towards the end of it was actually when i was finished with chemo in april i had two pulmonary embolisms and so which are blood clots in your lungs and it was from a combination of the chemo makes you makes your blood hypercoagulable and i was on birth control pills at the time which is a like a, a classic offender of pulmonary of dvt of blood clots um and then the cancer itself can just make you more hypercoagulable but i didn't realize that I had them and I was going to the gym and I was just getting like more and more short of breath. But I was at the very end of my chemo. I had my last chemo on St. Patrick's day. And this was April 1st that I got diagnosed with the blood clots in my lungs. So I was at the very end of chemo. Everyone kept telling me like, you're going to be so tired. Like this is going to, that's, that's the worst time. And, um, it was when I went to see my radiation oncologist, and I was like, yeah, I'm just getting more short of breath at the gym. Like things that I was able to do, I'm not able to do anymore. And everyone else had just like blown me off and been like, yeah, well, that's normal. And then my radiation oncologist was like, do you think we should do a PE scan? Do you, do you think you might have a PE? I was like, no, I don't think I have a PE. Like a P- blood clot in your lungs means like you can't breathe at all. You know, I don't think it's that bad. Um, and then I went for that scan and they don't let you leave until they don't let you leave the hospital until they read it. And I was sitting there. My sister was actually there and she was sitting there with me and I got, I was sitting in the hospital outside the uh, radiology center. And then I got a call on my cell phone from, from my radiation oncologist. And I was like, uh Oh, this doesn't go good. (laughs) So then she told me I had two blood clots in my lungs and I was like, I really don't want 
to be stay the night in the hospital because they have to admit you and give you heparin usually. I said, could we do an outpatient? They were small. They were small blood clots. And I was like, could we do outpatient anticoagulation? And she was like, well, let me see if I can get you Zeralto, but you would need to get it tonight. Like, I don't want, I need you to start on something tonight. And if not, then you'll have to stay. So I basically like talked her out of admitting me and, and I started the outpatient, um, the pill anticoagulation, which I had to take for three months. But my family was in town and we went to Dewey's Pizza right after I left the hospital. Nice. And I, <laughs> it was so good. And I remember telling my mom about this and how, you know, some usually you get admitted to the hospital, but I decided to go with the outpatient um, anticoagulation. And she was just like broke down at the table. She was so mad at me. And she thought that I had refused admission to the hospital. I left against medical advice. And she thought that I, that these blood clots happened because I was overdoing it. And she was like, I told you. I, this whole, the whole time she was on me about exercise and everyone was on me except for my sister who's as crazy as I am. She was like, you're fine. <laughs> and everyone else was on me that I'm pushing myself too hard. And then my mom in her head like thought that I made these blood clots happen by like overexerting myself. And then she thought I refused treatment for the blood clots. <laughs> and so she was like so mad at me. And I then was like, you can't be mad at me like that's not fair like i don't know it's such a weird that that was going to be one of my questions is is how was that for you speaking to your parents with as much knowledge as you have of of the disease and of the treatment and mm -hmm. unexpected outcomes versus uh my ma's the same if i don't <laughs> if i don't call her within a week she thinks i'm dead i know uh how was that for you then kind of dealing with that and be trying to be able to explain that you know what's happening you know versus there you go you, you don't know. I know it's hard it's a hard thing it's a it's a difficult situation to be in and I think I honestly probably used my position as a physician unfairly when it comes to my parents because anytime that they disagree with something like even when it was my mom telling me to go get my neck mask checked out I'm, I'm just like mom I'm actually a physician. <laughs> Just in case you don't know, I am a doctor and I think I know what I'm talking about. Like, I know. Yeah. And then she can't say anything back to that and that's not fair. And she was actually right about the, the mess, you know? So I think sometimes I use that like unfairly with my parents, but I it, it was a constant battle. I that was sticks out to me as one of the most like memorable things is that it was a constant battle of mom I'm fine mom I'm not going to doing it mom I'm like I want to go to the gym like it's not the gym is not mom how is the gym going to cause me harm like what specifically are you worried about that you're overdoing it well what does that mean like what do you think is going to happen what 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 like I wanted her to articulate like what yeah. harm is exercise going to bring to me, and she just is just like you're 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 gonna overdo it is the only thing she could say back because nobody like there is, I mean I guess you can overdo it. Yeah, you. But can. it's hard to say what are you what what are you overdoing like I, what? Yeah, I think that's it's a really good point because uh, it, you know we were talking before we went live about. The, the field of exercise oncology has guidelines and one of them is being aware of the compromised immune system 
and we have this traditional kind of uh, J-shaped curve where exercise is beneficial to immune system to a point. There comes a point with overtraining then that the, your immune system is compromised. And we think that maybe that shifted a little to the left and lower in that your tolerance is a little bit lower. But at the same time, I think that also creates an unnecessary barrier to exercise. And when we're talking to physicians and oncologists, they're saying, well, how can it help? And we're saying, well, how can it harm? Yeah. And if exercise keeps you feeling, quote unquote, normal, go for it, you know? Is it the idea that your body's using its resources, it's burning its energy through the exercise instead of fighting off the cancer? Is that like the hypothesis behind it? Yeah, like, a little bit of that. And then uh, the acute inflammatory response to exercise. Okay, people are like aware, muscle tearing and like exactly, things like that. Yeah, people are concerned about that potentially exacerbating the inflammatory response to chemo and that okay. you're you're kind of in this heightened inflammatory response during chemo there's that chronic low-grade infl- inflammation and that this <laughs> this is probably way this that dysregulated <laughs> inflammatory response you know maybe it's a it's a hyper response and then that puts you at an increased risk of of not necessarily in terms of overdoing it and you know injury or anything but more just kind of infections okay and so that acute infection then may hurt chemo down the line yeah so it's more just kind of being cautious of of you know we we say avoid like public pools you know yeah. cesspools of, of infections yeah. and stuff like that when you're in that immunocompromised state they told me to not pick up my dog's poop and stuff and i was like doing it all the time <laughs> i was like, yeah. I, was, like <laughs> I look for any excuse not to pick up dog <laughs> poop, so. yeah. but no i worried about sos i'd say my biggest concern with going to sos was just being around that many people and like i i got in the habit of wiping down my weights before class too people wipe them down afterwards um not that that is gonna you know kill every single germ but then i you know i had a a, a neutrophil count of zero which is like no protection whatsoever and i was going and i was like maybe i shouldn't do control course because that's like station to station i follow someone there's no way to sanitize in between that but at the same time, I was on inpatient consults at Ohio State. So I was seeing super sick people there. And like my oncologist was like, yeah, as long as you, you know, use proper hand hygiene, you should be fine. Yeah. And I think it's, it's probably a, a sweeping statement more for protection of some of those people at a heightened risk than it is for everyone going through chemo. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it may only be two or three days when uh, your neutrophil count is so low. That that, yeah, exactly. Whereas the other days are okay. But it also comes back to what you were speaking about and what I wanted to touch on was um, the idea of of modifying your exercise around how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. In that the, the day after you might be feeling okay, but the two two following two days, 48 and 72 hours, you're wrecked. So a lot of what I focus on with patients during treatment is, is just listening to your body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sure, it might be great to get out and walk around the block, but there's days where you can't exercise at all and being able to enjoy the days where you feel good but be okay with taking those other days off as well and not Mm -hmm. pushing it too far i think that's really important because you did it you did it the right way in terms of listening to your body but when we talked about that that uh, dysregulating inflammatory response if you had just gone all out no matter what even if you're feeling crappy and there are people that try to do that that's when i think the 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 risk then comes in in terms of infection And I think like an important point is that like you feel crappy all the time like that. And that is you're feeling crappy starts to become your new normal. So you never 
feel you we we so much take feeling normal for granted and now feeling normal feels amazing <laughs> but like you just have a low level of nausea the the entire time and that never goes away and you know you just feel kind of foggy headed mostly you know that never goes away but like the day the days after chemo that's where you feel hungover that's where you feel like muscle ache like the flu the muscle aches headache really feel nauseous nauseated to your stomach like those are the unbearable days but every day you feel like crap you know (laughs) but like you feel more like crap some days than other days and so you just kind of have to learn to live with that you know and i was like i started off taking all the anti-nausea pills zofran all that stuff like scheduled every eight hours and then that makes you constipated which adds to the problem and then i was like you know what i'm just gonna stop all this because it i feel nauseous i feel nauseated if i take them or i don't take them like i just have to this is kind of what i'm gonna have to deal with but you start to just you just get used to it almost like how did uh, how did your eating habits look during chemo? Did they change? You know, I speak to some people who who stuff tastes like metal. Some people who are getting sick so often that they have trouble eating. Mm-hmm. So how did that look like for you? I never like actually vomited or th- like got to the point where I was throwing up. Um, but I was definitely had like had less of an appetite my husband would get so frustrated with me because he was like trying to help and take care of me and he was like what do you want to eat and I said I don't know I'm hungry but I don't know what I want and then he'd name off 15 things and I'm like no 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 um I ate a lot of eggs because they were just kind of bland things that I ate so there was a Jimmy John's right as you pull into the chemo infusion center so I had that like at the infusion center during chemo multiple times so I have taken a a one-year hiatus from (laughs) Jimmy John's now did you go wheat sandwich or did you go white roll I went we I went the did they have a multi-grain bread I think I did that the um beach club oh yeah that was the jam. So my main concern with Jimmy John's is the white roll tends to have more meat in it. And mm-hmm. I think the wheat, the multigrain is phenomenal. Take yeah. slices of bread. It's really but good. The meat to bread ratio is just not fair. What about double meat? Why don't you just get double meat? I'm in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. I will, I will treat myself to Now, I will say I do have a very good friend who now works at Jimmy John's. Ooh. And I, very may, I may very well get her fired, but... She hooks it up sometimes. That's awesome. Yeah. So now it's a proportion of of adequate meat to, to carb ratio. Yeah. So, so you want like double meat to you want like two to one meat to carb. Yeah, and of course like, the the double meat then requires another dose of mayo or avocado or both, preferably. Plus it might be too big to even like fit in your mouth at that point because they're already this those slices of bread are thick. Like it's, it's already a, full, a thick sandwich. It's a full loaf of bread. Like uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um okay back so, on track. other than that i, I mean i like i kind of just ate whatever it sounded good and usually it was just like something fairly bland okay you so know pasta or eggs or i'll ask you an off the ball question because there's so much interest now in ketogenic diets and cancer mm-hmm. i don't know how much you know but uh, ketogenic diet is essentially really high fat fairly low in protein, very low in carbohydrates, with the idea that it, it essentially switches uh, your fuel utilization from glycogen, glucose, or sugar to fat. The 
idea behind it in cancer is that in certain cancers it may help arrest tumor growth to a certain degree uh and i'm having a couple of people on the podcast later on the summer to talk about this but because from, the from cancer cells feed off carbohydrate exactly, sugar is that exactly. the, okay and there's some pl- preliminary evidence in mice and dogs um my concern or my my from a point of ignorance me looking at this and, and understanding what people go through in chemo uh, you don't have a lot of appetite. You not a lot of stuff sounds good, and there is a lot of nausea. To get into a state of of ketosis where it's beneficial, it requires a lot of fat, mm-hmm. and you know it's a lot of heavy cream, a lot of butters, mm-hmm. and and in terms of tolerability, can you picture that? Could could would you have thought that was something that was feasible for you to do? No, I wouldn't. No. And personally, I, ju- I just I don't buy into diet in to to that extent. I think that diet can is definitely important. It can help us, you know, stay healthy and uh, you know our overall health. But like when you're going through chemo and you're fighting off cancer, do I think whether you eat more carbohydrates or eat more fat is going to make a difference in your long term outcome or it, no, I don't. I think that during that time, and I can't emphasize this enough, you are like so fragile, like it just like mentally and just, you're just trying to hang on. And that's what I think about the exercise too, is just do anything to keep yourself sane and eat whatever sounds good because the chemo is fighting off the cancer. Like, I don't think that the fat, I mean, it's good. That's great if you want to maintain a certain diet. But do I think it's going to make a big difference? No, because you're going through chemo, or like, or maybe you should, you know, you can try forego the chemo and do diet only and see how that works out. But like, I just, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I just don't think it's going to make that much of a difference to make yourself miserable during that time that's already super stressful. I think that you need to just do whatever keeps you sane and eat whatever sounds good and exercise if that makes you happy or whatever one of the other questions i had was you kind of touched on uh gretchen essentially just kind of giving you crap mm-hmm. um, and that's something i love about <laughs> i gretchen. think they just they just hire they only take on people who love to give people crap uh, yeah. but how was that in gretchen's ability to uh to to not treat you any differently and still give you the same crap she would always give you mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe coming up to you and being more soft and sympathetic and and treating you differently how did that make you feel I never when I was going through it like I never really felt like a cancer patient in in like the traditional sense and I always felt strong I never even I I didn't really think I looked like a cancer patient even when I was wearing my scarves and even after I shaved my head but now I look back at pictures and I'm like oh gosh I definitely looked like a (laughs) cancer patient but I I love the swagger though just I I know I mean I like I wore I wore scarves and then after I shaved my head I wore scarves for maybe a few weeks but then I just rocked a buzz cut and like I think I just looked like a girl who decided to shave her head. Like, I don't I don't think that people looked at me and thought I had cancer. People didn't know me. Maybe they did. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I think that that's really important. That's one thing I really liked about SOS is that 
there was no special treatment there. I mean, there was a little bit. Like, people did nice things for me. Someone gave me a 30-class pass, like a stranger. Um, and they wrote the – Carrie brought over a jar of, of notes that people, strangers at SOS had written. And, you know, there'd be personal stories on there. Things like, I've seen you in class, and you're such a badass, and things like that. Um, and they, they did great things. But, like, when you're there, like, you check all that stuff at the door, and it's just a time where I could just feel some level of normalcy in my life in some level of control because like I said that everything in your body is so out of control and you have no control over any of it and just at at the gym it's like one thing that I felt like okay I can I have some level of control over this and um, even like that brings up another milestone I said like SOS is in, in all my milestones when I shaved my head I went to just get a trim and I was just hanging on to like I don't know, like a quarter of the hairs that a normal person probably has, or maybe even less. Um, and I was trying to cover it up, and I just went for a trim, and she just kept, she cut it, and it, it looked worse. And I was like, well, just take a little bit more off. Maybe it'll look better. And it just kept looking worse. And then she was like, do you want me to just shave it? And I was like, yeah, I guess. I mean, what am I hanging on to here? And so she shaved it, and I didn't cry or anything. This was at my hairdresser's. And then I went home. And I had put my scarf back on, and I, wa- I walked in, and I said to my husband, so I shaved my head. And he was like, no, you didn't. And I was like, yes, I did. And he was like, I can see your hair through that, because he could see, like, a little sideburn right here. And I was like, I swear to God. So I just, like, took off my scarf, and he was like, oh, my gosh, you shaved your head. And then we took some, like, funny selfies. But then the next morning, I went to clocked at 530 in the morning, and that was the first time, other than my husband and the hairdresser, no, that no one had seen my shaved head. I hadn't, no, my parents hadn't seen it. Like nobody else had seen it. And I, that night was like laying awake in bed, like just a little anxious about it. Like what, I was just going to walk in there with a cue ball shaved head at 5.30 in the morning. And I did, but nobody even looked at me. Like no, I think it was partly because it's 5.30 and partly because it's SOS, but I just like strolled in there and like not one single person even looked. And then it would, I just did my normal workout and I went home. You make me feel brutal about, I get a cold sore. I don't want to leave <laughs> the house for two days, know. you know, and you were just full <laughs> shaved hair, just rocking it. Yeah. Um. So what are you still struggling with now in terms of kind of, you're, you're a year out of treatment, uh, anything you're still struggling with now from treatment? Um, I'd say the most thing, the most noticeable thing right now is that I feel like a tightness in my neck, which I think is from radiation, and it just causes a little bit of kind of like scar tissue. And also, like I said, I have I still have a mass from where you can't go from having an eight and a half centimeter mass in your chest where there's not a lot of extra space. And vanish like there was never any th- anything there and you can't you know leave no footprint behind so I still have a little bit of a mass there and I feel like pulling sometimes in my neck um, and then I get a cough at the gym still like more of a productive cough and that's something that's scary too because you're like oh gosh the cough is how it started and that's what I ignored and now I have a cough again. But is that from my radiation or is that the cancer coming back? Or like, it's always like, once you have cancer, there's definitely a before cancer and an after cancer. And you never, you lose your your innocence and your, your, your um, 
feeling of invincibility. Like you never again, you lose the freedom to ever again have a cold and not have it cross your mind. Is this something more than a cold? You know, you, you lose that ability to just be a normal sick person. You're always like thinking, what could it be? Um, but that I do. So my car, I would say my cardio capacity isn't up to speed still a year out. I, before cancer ran a couple, I ran a couple half marathons and I would just go on runs like a four or five mile run would be a, no, a normal thing. I hate running now, even though there's like a mile run. I would, I don't even want to do it. Um, I cough at the gym and yeah, like I said, I feel that like tightness in my neck, um, still growing my hair out. Um, I have some like skin pigmentary, like Darcy touched on. There's something called flagellate hyperpigmentation um, that are these like lines of just like darkness from, that's from the bleomycin does that. So I have like a big one on my chest and I have one on my back and my arms and stuff like that. But So that's interesting because one of the things we look at when we do our exercise interventions, uh, you know, we look at physical function, look at psychosocial outcomes. We also look at uh, body image relationship and how has that changed for you in in terms of marks scars whatever it is mm-hmm. has that changed for you a year on out from treatment the one that bothers me the most is probably this big one on my chest and it's in the it's, it's a dark area in the area where i had a tegaderm placed during chemo and i've been trying to figure out what i think caused it do i think that i was allergic to that dressing or do I think that was the bleomycin? And there, I think it's. I ultimately think it's the bleomycin. They've done studies in ch- in children where they have EKG leads on them during bleomycin therapy, and if you remove the bleo, if you remove the EKG leads immediately after the infusion, they will leave hyperpigmented areas. So I think it's something about the trauma to the skin during or right after the bleomycin infusion that causes that to somehow deposit there. So. But I was trying to say, like, I was trying to think, is this going to be something that goes away? Because bleomycin tends to stick around longer than if this were just, um, you know, I had an irritation to the skin that left behind a mark. That usually tends to fade. But this has been, you know, a year and a half since I've had this. It's not fading. So that's the one that bothers me the most. Other than that, none of this other stuff really bothers me. I kind of like the one on my arm because I can see it and it reminds me. It's just like a, it's like a little tattoo kind of. Um, but I think in general, I just feel, I would say I feel more comfortable in my body because you just start to realize that none of the little stuff that you always cared about matters, you know, and, and as long as you're happy and healthy and none of the other stuff matters. Okay. So one of the, the, one of the questions I really want to ask you is with your train, and we talked about this a little before you went live with your training as a physician, uh, you had no idea the field of exercise oncology existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, do you get any sort of dietarian and exercise advice as an M- MD? Uh, DO. DO. Yeah. So even as a DO, which mm-hmm. is interesting because it tends to be of more... OMM and yeah. osteopathic manipulation, yeah. So as, as a DO, do you get any sort of dietary or, or exercise classes? We had nutrition classes and uh, not... It lectures mainly like an hour or so at a time um i don't really remember there being any physical activity lectures necessarily any exercise physiology lectures there may have been um and i we had no we've i've never even read a journal article about exercise in the treatment of cancer 
or exercise oncology. So now having had cancer and, you know, after speaking to me, you know, although briefly, um, how do you then see the field, <laughs> you know, since learning what I do and what we do, how have you seen that? Has your perspective shifted at all? I think so. I think that, and you and Darcy touched on this a little bit. I, I was able, I don't, I didn't need clear cut guidelines about what to do and what not to do because like my training as a physician and because I listened to my body. But I think that for the lay person, like for the, you know, the normal person who's not, who doesn't also happen to be a doctor, we do need to be able to give them more concrete guidelines. And it's still like, like I was trying to get my mom to articulate, what is your fear about me exercising? What are you afraid is going to happen? Um, and we, we can't really, we don't have answers for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. It's all, the answer is always do what you feel like doing or listen to your body. And well, your body is going through chemo. It's hard to listen to your body because it's sending you all kinds of mixed messages. So, I mean, like I said to you, this field is, is just about 40 years old. And we've looked in a variety of cancers in a variety of different treatments at different time points. We've looked at dose responsive exercise. So if you do, you know, 30 minutes versus 60 minutes, how does that look? And seeing, you know, incredible improvements both during treatment and in survivorship um, and even long-term in terms of recurrence and stuff. So our big push right now is we feel that we have enough evidence to warrant exercise oncology as a standard of care that mimics cardiac rehab. Mm -hmm. Now we're trying to figure out how does that look? Mm -hmm. Is it the physicians that give that advice? Is it that we have a team? And it's it's just, it boggles our mind in that nutrition is, is so easy uh, a standard component of the cancer mm -hmm. care model mm -hmm. where do you have a nutritionist come in we're kind of saying there's more evidence on the efficacy of exercise. of exercise so mm -hmm. how do we get a physiologist in there in that you know people people come to us and say why didn't my oncologist say anything and we're saying they don't that's not their training they yeah. They, yeah. they are worried about figuring out how to get you through treatment they mm -hmm. do not have that training or they don't need to be that person mm -hmm. but let us do that yeah so how do you think that model would look in in a in a hospital setting i think it would be in probably in combination with the nutritionist i feel like the two of those specialties working together in like your pre-chemo counseling so like i said i went to the infusion center before i even started treatment and they did a, i think it was a rn who went through every like what to expect with me like having something in that you know pre-treatment counseling um and i think that like just providing resources because it's another thing that people don't think about is how financially stressful an illness is on you um, but I, you know, I had thousands upon thousands of dollars of medical bills and, you know, a wedding to plan. And I was a resident and my husband was orthodontics is actually a master's degree. So he was still paying tuition. So that's really financially stressful. And oftentimes people all the, the last thing on their list is shelling out money for a gym membership, you know, so providing resources that are available and easy for them. And, um, 
then like you said a rehab i think that a rehab afterwards is probably just as beneficial if not more than than maintaining exercise during treatment because you just don't realize how much your cardio capacity just plummets and it sucks when you go back and try to push it like when you're out of shape and this was like i thought it was not fair because i was like i am working out almost every day and i am getting more out of shape like I am, I'm losing and I'm not, and I, but I'm working my butt off, but working out when you can't catch your breath is the absolute worst. And I think that people, they never want, once you get through that, it gets better. You know, once you get conditioned, it gets better and it starts to become fun again, but nobody wants to get through that period where it just sucks and but before you get back in shape. So helping them through that period and that could be six months or longer. Yeah. And two of those things you talked about are a mainstay of what we do as exercise oncologists in one shifting your mindset in terms of the goals from exercise particularly during and immediately after exercise and that mm -hmm. you are going to feel like you're just busting your arse and you're not seeing any improvements mm -hmm. but maintaining function or at least attenuating the decline in function mm -hmm. is a massive achievement so yeah that shift in mindset can help a lot and then the other part you kind of mentioned was people don't have access to a gym membership and who are we to say on top of all of your medical bills hire a trainer hire an rd get it get a consult that's going to cost you two or three hundred dollars a month whereas we take the perspective that yes we do have guidelines yes there are maybe some optimal ways of exercising but for the most part we'll come to you we'll figure out how this can fit into your lifestyle as opposed to saying you need to go and slug it on an elliptical for 40 minutes yeah is it just to walk around the neighborhood with your with your friends for that social support to get out and just breathe fresh air? Yeah. Um, and we really, the value of exercise is medicine, not just physically, but for that mental aspect mm -hmm. and just the release, as you said, is 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 incredibly valuable to these people. And it has to be directed towards one person's goals. I mean, the situation that I was in was a lot different than somebody who's 75 who has cancer. Like, maybe that person just wants to be able to walk their dog and that's what they enjoy in life. Then then those are completely different goals and exercises that you would do with them versus me. I want to beat Gretchen on plyo jumps. So, like, those <laughs> are two very different, but it, it's all relative. And that's why you can't – that's why it's so difficult to give any sort of standard guidelines to people. And that's why it's so difficult to come up – like, it need, It has to be individualized. It's one of the frustrations in when we deliver a lot of these talks to support groups or to community or even to patients themselves – and uh you know the talk is exercise to complement treatment or improve survivorship and you almost feel guilty going in there with generic guidelines yeah. so a lot of our, our talk is less about the guidelines that are, that are out there and more about how do we fit the guidelines to you what are some motivational and behavioral strategies that are going to keep you active because someone like you you're always going to go back to exercise like that's your release whereas someone who doesn't see the value in exercise just yet or isn't active i'm less concerned about what you can do in an eight-week period i'm more concerned and are you still active a year down the line or two years down the line so that's what we really try and and work with these people on and maybe we need to change our terminology too because i think in medicine things we say things and to everyone else it, it's interpreted a separate way like when i say diet i don't mean you need to go on a diet. I don't mean a diet. I mean diet. Diet is the term I use for what you eat. 
Exactly. So I talk to them about their diet and they hear diet and they don't like that. <laughs> or like you talk to them about exercise. They don't like exercise. You know, like just changing the way that we even talk to people because we just assume that people understand what I mean by diet and what you mean by exercise. What you mean by exercise, they think what I'm doing. They don't think, you know, walking your dog or like it's just activity. Yeah, exactly. And it's, diet just means what you eat. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't have to be structured going into the gym. It can be go, you know, if you if you like to do horse riding, go ride your horse. If you like skiing, it's bowling. It's again, exactly. Like it could be literally anything, yeah. but they hear the word exercise. They're like, no, I can't do that. Or a diet or diet. No, I don't want to, I don't want to hear any more about this. Yeah, the, the biggest thing we try to get across is that people will have a ton of different interests before cancer there's no reason to drop all of those interests because of cancer and its treatment and you know i'm not into bmxing but maybe a bmx and that's your you know it doesn't have to be going in and looking at a at a tv screen while you walk on a treadmill you know mm -hmm. if, if it fits your lifestyle that's what we try and get across yep um so i think we figured it out we yep. figured out how to solve <laughs> we did it. we solved it yeah um, now where's my check uh, it, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll save up all the money from my saved uh, double meat on yeah, Jimmy okay. John's so you'll get it in a, about a year and a half got it got it so that's it for Kylie's interview again I can't thank her enough for her honesty and vulnerability in talking about her treatment everything she went through in terms of her experience and it's just great to see her doing so well and bouncing back really well from treatment and I wish her all the best in the future and if you're looking for more information on what we do, go to reachbeyondcancer.com and you can find all the podcast episodes there. You can follow me on various social media sites there and you can look into everything else we do both in the community and online. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Kieran Fairman for all sorts of updates related to exercise, nutrition and cancer health. So thanks again, folks, and we'll see you next time.